This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We've heard lots of chatter of late uh, about minimum wage and, of course, it going up uh, as we redefine, I guess, what minimum wage is and and, and what it stands for. Uh, Metro Grocery Store, the latest to take a look at automation after it revealed that uh, the minimum wage increase was going to cost them $50 million dollars. Uh, in order to uh, make the switch. Lots of other provinces have already done it. Let's talk to Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and he is with us now. Hello, Ian. How are you today? I am doing very well, Scott. And thanks for the time. Uh, We much appreciate this, uh, you taking the time to join us and talk about this. Uh, Government said that they see no reason why not uh, to raise uh, the minimum wage. is is Metro just uh, saying, uh, hey, we don't want to pay up? What, what, what's your thoughts here? Of course not. And I will disclose up front, I don't consult to anybody anywhere. I don't have any revenues or investments or stocks or bonds or anything in any corporations anywhere. Um, I do uh, study this industry, in, and my students uh, study this industry uh, in my classes uh, because it's well-known, retail groceries. And uh, everybody goes to grocery stores. Um, So now to answer your question, uh, this industry is notorious for having very, very low margins. The average is $1 of profit on every $100 of sales. Everybody, even Math Challenge, can understand that's 1%. It's a very low margin industry. That's the first point. The second point, the argument of those in favor of minimum wage have been, there's a couple of arguments. The one is, that they haven't said, said this explicitly, but there's certainly a strong suggestion that there are very large numbers of Canadians, or very substantial numbers of Canadians, working on minimum wage, and they need a living wage. This is an urban legend. The vast majority of people in Canada who work are not on minimum wage, around 95%. A small number are on minimum wage, and they are overwhelmingly young people. And you would say that's about 5%? That's the number, 6.7. 6.7% are on minimum wage. Okay, okay sorry, and, go ahead. And the majority of them, two-thirds of them, are young people under the age of 25. I think it's been a grotesque misrepresentation to uh, characterize this entire debate as the need for a minimum wage. The way I would argue it is the way I've always understood minimum wage it is an apprenticeship program for young people like me when I came out of high school and I had no job experience and no nothing and I went around a series of minimum wage jobs and it became a bridge eventually a foot in the door to a real job and so if we understand that minimum wage jobs are not supposed to be a living wage They are merely a get-your-foot-in-the-door apprenticeship program, in essence. Then our whole understanding of minimum wage changes. Now, let me go very quickly to the actual numbers. The the second argument, and it's been very explicit by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and those people speaking out, is there's going to be no negative consequences from raising the minimum wage. Kathleen Wynne, Premier Wynne, has made that very clear. In other words, you can subsidize substantially increase, double-digit increase your expenses in one area of a business. Or, by the way, let's not limit this to business. I work at university, and our biggest single expense is wages. 
So the argument is you can substantially increase the wages, not that we are minimum wage, by the way, in universities. It's a more uh, dealing with retail. It's a phenomenon of retailing, such as fast food and grocery stores. Uh, but the idea is, is that you can increase a very major expenditure of your organization called wages without any corresponding major increase in revenues, and there will be no impact whatsoever on the organization. I mean, this is snake oil. Hmm. This is alchemy. Back in the Middle Ages, there were met people, they were fraud, they were con artists, who were trying to tell people they could convert lead to gold at no cost, meaning they had a magic solution, a magic potion. Okay? Where I'm going with this, it is preposterous. It is absolutely absurd to say you can increase your wages by t- literally 20 or 30%, your total cost structure in your business, and it's going to have zero impact. I am not, for those who want to go after me, I'm not saying that the grocery store industry is going to vanish. Of course not. I'm not saying any industry is going to vanish. But we know how they're going to respond and react. In fact, the article today about Metro, they made it very clear what they're going to do. He says our costs are going up significantly. So he says we're not going to pass it on through prices, so we're going to increase uh, rigid cost control. In plain English, what does that mean? It means that the lineups in every store, and I predict this, in grocery stores and retailers across the country, across Ontario, excuse me, are going to get longer. They're going to have fewer counters staffed. They're going to cut back on the hours, in other words. Secondly, they're going to go more and more to automation called kiosks. For those of your listeners who've been to McDonald's, I'm sure many or most have, were going down the road that they went in the airline industry where instead of the airline agent filling out the ticket, you, they outsource it to you, the customer, and you complete the labor to complete the ticket. Mm-hmm. And we're doing that now when you go into McDonald's and it's going to have spread to other stores, more and more automated checkout counters, whether at Loblaws or Canadian Tire or Rona, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's going to be less people on the floor serving you, reduced customer service, the lineups will be longer, and there will be more and more automated checkout counters. Those are the consequences. Now, some people could say, well, that's great, I'm okay with that, uh, but, and, but we're doing all of this based on a, what I argue is a false model, the uh, living wage model, when it should be looked at as an apprenticeship model, and what we're doing is we're sabotaging the bridge for young people to, find a, to, to work into a full-time permanent job uh, in, a, in an organization. We have talked about this many times, Ian, where, uh, you know, trying to define what minimum wage, trying to figure out what the objective of minimum wage is. And I've had this discussion with advocates for the increase in yeah. minimum wage, and they have said, well, the problem is what minimum wage was set up to be back in your in our time is completely different than what it is now. That a lot of people have two or three minimum wage jobs and are trying to make ends meet. because That's simply not supported statistically by the StatsCan data. I want to make that crystal clear. I've got the study sitting on my screen as I speak to you, okay? And they did a study. They've done many studies, but the latest 2016 study, that is simply an urban legend that is not true. First off, the vast majority of Canadians do not work at minimum wage. They do not. It's a myth. It is an urban legend. Let me quote throw a couple of others. These are hard numbers. These aren't theories. These aren't opinions. These aren't public opinion polls. StatsCan and the government of Ontario compute 
from the actual graduates graduating when they get jobs. They measure the average starting salary. And in Ontario, right now, coming out of, now this is coming out of university, it's around $55,000. Now that is so far above the minimum wage, it's not funny. Okay, and so the, when you look at the, the labor data, the employment data, for those with a college degree or those with a university degree, the, their, their salary, starting salaries are miles above the minimum wage. Uh, is, many would say, advocates will say, yeah, but what about all of the rest? What well, about the ones five, that, that, that... I've already responded to mm-hmm. that statistic very clearly. Only five, 6.7% are on minimum wage, and two-thirds of the 67 are below the age of 25, living, mostly living at home with mom and dad. Mm. And it is a job that is a bridge job to, the, to, uh, to acquire the experience and the know-how, etc., to get a real job. I had a series of minimum wage jobs for three years before I finally worked into a, a uh, worked out of minimum wage jobs. And I did that nonsense that, you know, oh, it's a very different world today, is, is just, if you think about it for a moment, think about it. What they're saying is an 18-year-old today has vastly greater experience than an 18-year-old of 30 or 40 years ago. That's just preposterous, silly nonsense. An 18-year-old is an 18-year-old, and they don't have vast amounts of experience. If they did, they'd be hired as vice presidents or as, as partners in law firms. Of course they're not. You, you start out when you're young. You don't have a, any experience. You don't have a lot of education. You don't have a lot of training. You start at the bottom, mm-hmm. and you're trained. Even if you come out of university or college, you still start at the relatively near the bottom. You start as a trainee, typically, and then you work your way up. But the, the, it's all based on a premise that is just simply false, that there are large numbers of people who are absolutely uh, you know, in, in desperate shape because they're on minimum wage, and that is simply not true. In fact, when you look at the poverty statistics, which has been done by Stats Canada, most people in poverty are not on minimum wage. The people in minimum wage and poverty in Canada, and we have one of the lower rates of poverty in the entire world, by the way, as a percentage of our population, and they're overwhelmingly people who aren't working at all. They're on social assistance or they're on disability, and their income ha- is, is very low. But this, uh, it's, a, it's a myth out there. It's an urban legend promulgated by CCPA and some of the unions that there's large numbers of people. In why is this? Why, why is this myth, myth perpetuated then, Ian? What, what's the advantage? I would argue it's ideology. It's partly ideology. There are people that just just think it's wrong that somebody's only paid eleven dollars an hour. So I mean that's ideological. There, it's partly because they haven't looked at the statistics. It's partly in the unions' instance because they understand if the floor goes. I mean, there's a very strategic self-interest. And by the way. For anybody who thinks I'm anti-union, I'm a member in two unions. My own university union, I'm unionized, and I'm a member of the CBC union uh, for the journalist union because I am a contributor to the CBC. Okay, so I belong to two unions. But the unions realize that are advocating this, and there is a very strong coalition of unions, that when you push up the floor, the minimum wage is the floor for all labor. So when you push up the floor, it pushes up all the other wages. Yeah, yeah. So that there's the self-interest for the unions. Yeah. And they and, and again, I'm not saying let's go out and grind anybody into the ground. I'm saying why I am so opposed to this is we are hurting our young people getting their foot in the door. That's the problem. We are reducing their opportunities to develop some basic experience. The way I like to put it a little bit flippantly is, you know, you work in a minimum wage job and you learn that you have to brush your teeth every morning before you go to work hmm. and comb your hair and have a shower 
and you don't swear and spit at the customers, and you're polite to people, including the boss. Now, I'm being a little bit humorous, or trying to be a little bit facetious, but these are all the social skills that you learn and the tacit knowledge you acquire when you're 16, 17, 18, 19, when you just don't know any better. And to suggest that today our students have stronger understanding of those skills than 40 years ago, I would say that that is, is another urban legend. Um, here I will uh, read you an, uh, an email that we have uh, just received. Uh, Ian did a pretty good job of trying to create panic over minimum wage. Unfortunately, he made a grand contradiction. At the outset, he emphasized that only 5% are on minimum wage. So if that's small, what's the big deal? I don't, believe, yeah, I don't believe for a minute that grocery stores only make $1 a profit for every 100 If that's correct, management and ownership... Uh, I should be making one hell of a wage salary and a dividend. It would be great to see Ian live on minimum wage for a year. I actually lived on minimum wage for three years mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and in between periods of unemployment um, uh, in the 70s when I was from 18 till 21. So, yeah, I did it. Uh, and, in fact, I grew up on a farm where the minimum wage for farmers in those days still is, is lower than the minimum wage. It was set at a, ra- at a ratio of the minimum wage below. Um, that's the first point. Uh, the second point is this person who wrote into you, I'm not creating panic. I, ju- I actually explicitly said no industry is going to vanish, no industry is going to collapse, and I'm not even predicting any company is going to collapse. That's the opposite of panic. I'm saying they're going to adjust, and they're going to respond by doing what? In one simple word, reduce labor costs by reducing the number of hours, which reduces customer service. And I said that's not the end of the world. That's not a panic. Uh, it just means standing in line for five minutes or ten minutes instead of uh, 30 seconds to two minutes. That's not a panic. That's just a reality. But I want to deal with the alleged contradiction. The implicit claim is, is that the minimum wage people are completely divorced from everybody else, and there's no impact. Because his point was, if most people aren't on minimum wage, how on earth can it affect the corporation, uh, the employer, uh, in terms of their overall cost structure? Because... The, it is the minimum for all, wa- for all yeah. labor. That is, the minimum wage is the minimum. When you push it up from 11 to 15, it has a knock-on effect throughout the entire wage economy. Yeah. In other words, the people that were making 15 who were well ab- relatively well above the minimum wage uh, they go up. are going to go up yeah. to everybody, 20. Everybody gets bumped 20 up. They're yeah. going to go up to 25. Yeah, everyone and, gets bumped up. And they're going to get bumped up because that's just the nature of the, of the, the wage and labor market. So it's yeah. the knock-on effect throughout the... Uh, the um, so uh, when minimum wage, wage goes up, everybody's wage eventually goes up. Right. Now, yeah. I want to come back, though, to the fundamental... Which lots argument. will say is not a bad thing, but there are consequences to this. There's consequences. And I just want to come back to the fundamental premise that is being argued. There's no cost to this whatsoever, no negative cost, no downside to raising the minimum wage. And if you believe that, and if Kathleen Wynne believes that, and if the labor unions believe that then why stop at 15? If it's a free lunch, if there really is a free lunch, I don't believe there is, by the way, but if there is, why not $30 an hour? Why not 50 I'm not being flippant at all. If you accept the argument, there are no downside costs to increasing the minimum wage, which is what they are arguing. They are saying, look, this, there's no cost. There'll be no layoffs. There'll be no reduction in workers' hours. No reduction in benefits. It's just win, win, win all the way. Why stop at $15 mm. an hour? Why not go to 30 
I mean, we can abolish poverty tomorrow morning, according to that logic. We'll just give everybody large enough raises uh, to raise everybody up. That's the, I mean, that's the silliness, the speciousness of this argument. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We have talked many times, including this week, on uh, the situation, what is happening in Quebec and uh, the flood of uh, Haitian refugees coming from the United States into Canada. Uh, Reason being, these people were granted uh, uh, temporary stay in the United States and in Canada uh, after the earthquakes of 2010. Uh, Canada has allowed those people to stay uh, longer uh, in the United States. uh, The deal comes up in January. Many Haitians worried that they are now going to be sent home and are uh, crossing illegally into Canada through holes in the fence, per se, and uh, claiming refugee status. Uh, Global News has uncovered that multiple refugee claimants near the Quebec border crossing have been found to have uh, child pornography in their possession. To talk more about all of this, Sean Craig is with us. Uh, Sean Craig is with us, investigative reporter, Global News, and with us now. Hello, Sean. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to join us on this. Do we have any idea of what the numbers are, uh, how many people are being uh, caught with child pornography? Yeah, it's a relatively small number at this point. The, the, the source that we have talked to us is there's been about four or five incidents, and the public safety ministry was able to confirm two incidents where charges were placed to us. Um, where it's of note is that the, these small number of cases have been significant enough in the minds of the Canadian border authorities that they've now created a policy or, or protocol that they sent out to their frontline officers uh, telling them how to deal with instances where they uncover child pornography and similar illicit materials. Uh, and why did they have to issue these orders? There's nothing per se to uh, on paper to deal with this. Uh, it mentions in the document that they're they're going to try and develop a national policy, um, but it, 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 yeah, it probably is related to the fact that, like you mentioned in your introduction, there that what's happening at the you know at the Quebec border cross, uh, crossing right now in particular is quite unique because the city of Montreal just said earlier this month that. They're receiving as many as 250 to 300 refugee and asylum applicants a day crossing from that border point. Uh, just a month ago in July, it was 50. So, you know, authorities are right now dealing with a much, much, much larger number of asylum claimants, both coming through legal ports of entry and also coming between ports of entry across borders where they're often picked up by either the RCMP or if you're in, you know, a province like Ontario or a province like Quebec by the provincial police authorities. So there's, you know, you've got different... Uh, Police authorities, you know, that operate in different jurisdictions, all, uh, you know, dealing with this problem that's grown exponentially in the last few months. Uh, and so, you know, it makes sense that you start to see new policies coming out just because they, you know, this is something unprecedented. Sean, uh, what does this say? Uh, the fact that they did catch these, does that say the system is working? Or would that lead one to believe that uh, we've only caught a few lots more slipping through? Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the ministry says that it does you know, the, you know that this shows that they're, they're, the system is in place, that it's working, or you know, and that they're constantly developing new protocols and things like this. The you know the opposition conservatives have said that you know this issue, in tandem with an issue at the uh, the Emerson border crossing in Manitoba, which uh, Global reported on earlier this month, where you know the CBSA said it believed there were Somalis crossing over who had criminal records. Um, also fearing deportation from the United States. You know, they, the conservatives in, have said, in particular have said that, you know, their concern is that the federal government hasn't done a good enough job in 
uh, making clear that, you know, you know, Canada's, uh, well, making clear the legal guidelines of Canada's asylum and immigration system by encouraging people to try and come in, you know, mostly through legal border crossings. Um, you know, that's their chief criticism, they've said. And they said the government needs to sort of refine its messaging and emphasize, you know, against crossing between border points. Uh, that being said, we are now hearing that Ottawa is getting that message and uh, that Canada's U.S. consulate is set to set the record straight and try to provide a little bit more education. Uh, mm-hmm. I, th- I think a lot of these people think that, you know, it's just, yeah, come on in, you're welcome. Uh, is there more efforts to, to educate and try to uh, give people an idea of what their chances are if they, if they select this route? Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, exactly. Like you mentioned, it sounds like the consulates are going to start trying to put out more proactive messaging. Uh, and this is probably what this is a sign of, right? We have a situation in the United States where, you know, you can argue that a, a particularly volatile political situation there has caused uh, understandable stressors on people that maybe have asylum status or come from certain parts of the world and are, you know, are living as either immigrants or on visas in the United States. Um, and so that's created what we were just talking about. That's created pressures on a place like Canada, which borders it, where we've maybe seen certain kinds of migration um, scale up to paces that you know, border authorities in Canada haven't dealt with, and you know at least not in a long time. And so that means yes, you're you're probably going to see consulates developing policies. This is a sign that CBSA, RCMP, uh, the SQ in Quebec, and probably you know I imagine the OPP in Ontario and other authorities across Canada are going to have to develop new best practices to deal with this. Uh, has the U.S. weighed in on this at all? Do they care about this, this, flat, this flood of people coming into our country from theirs? Um, they, I mean, they work together in certain situations. For example, you know, unrelated to someone being caught on U.S. soil, there's one instance that we referenced in our story where in, in February, Canadian border authorities did identify someone that they suspected was in possession of child pornography, who, you know, who was a Haitian who was crossing. Um, and they determined the suspicion before he crossed the Canadian border, so they sent him back to American authorities. It turned out to be true, and so New York State Police charged him with two counts of child pornography. You know, that's an instance where you have both border authorities working together. Um, you, you know, the, I, the political machinations, who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm a reporter, I'm yeah. not a commentator, but I think it's fair to say that we have a pretty volatile uh, American administration that has you know, sent a lot of mixed messages in recent months. <laughs> and I think that's just a fair factual thing to say. So, you know, whether they care or not, I don't know. But, uh, you know, you, you certainly can say that border authorities and frontline officers, um, you know, they do their jobs. They're committed to protecting the safety of both of their countries. Any word if uh, you were talking about uh, Canada telling consulates to, to pass on this information, any more, uh, any news as if if the Prime Minister is going to comment on this? After all, lots will say he's the one that stood up and said, hey, come on in, you're all welcome, with really not telling any of the rules and leaving that up to the individual provinces to handle. Yeah, I, I don't know. We'll have to see, you know, a Parliament will come back in the fall and it's entirely possible that the, you know the government will have a refined or different message, um, you know. And I know they've they've constantly been updating and assessing how the you know unrelated but the Syrian refugee program where we committed to taking a large number of people in. Um, so yeah, I'm sure you know every year the immigration ministry is going to have to assess and analyze how things have gone in the last year. But uh, you know I I have no idea to be honest. We'll have to see. Sean Craig has been with us, investigative reporter, Global News. Make sure you're watching uh, Global News tonight for more on this. Sean, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
Thanks very much. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. All right. Let's bring in uh, Aris Dagigan. He is a refugee lawyer, uh, lawyer Green and Spiegel, uh, an, immigra- an immigration law firm in Toronto, and is with us now. Hello, Aris. How are you today? Good, thanks. How are you? Good. Uh, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, are, are you getting the message that Ottawa is now trying to uh, start some sort of education process and, and stem the flow and uh, tell everybody what is really happening here north of the border? Yeah, I think it is important for anyone coming into Canada to know that there isn't some sort of automatic approval process that they do have to go through um, legal proceedings. There is a hearing that they will have to attend. They will have to prove that they have a well-founded claim that they need protection from their home country. So it's not just walking across the border and being rubber stamped. And that's something that individuals coming here need to know. They need to be well informed. Eris, though, are the people, though, who are going through the hole in the fence going to get that information? Because my guess is they're not talking to their consulates. Yeah, well, I mean, one place for them to get it would be through their consulates. Another, perhaps, would just be through the regular news media. The more this comes to light, both in in our own news media on the Internet and back uh, in the U.S., the more they'll understand what's really the process is. Also, they might hear from um, relatives, family, friends that they have who have have made this trek and go through this process. Word might start spreading back. Mm. So uh, if you are a, uh, you know, a, uh, a Haitian immigrant who came uh, to the United States after the uh, earthquakes in, in 2010 and you are stuck between a rock and a hard place here wondering if you're going to get deported uh, in January from the United States, uh, would they class as someone who would be a refugee in Canada? It would be an individual assessment, and I think that's one thing that has to be made clear. It's, it's not that Canada is going to be giving the green light to every um, Haitian national who comes across the border. It's an individualized assessment, whether their particular profile renders them particularly um, subject to either persecution or a risk to their life or of torture back in Haiti. So the general, general country conditions in the country of origin are never a reason um, to grant someone refugee protection. It has to be something special to them. Uh, that being said, uh, the numbers, I believe, in Quebec last year, uh, uh, of the 400 or so that came in, uh, over half of them, or 200, over 200, were sent back uh, and didn't qualify for refugee status. Right. Do you see that situation with, with and again, every situation's got to be uh, judged individually, but do you see that in this mass sort of uh, uh, influx we have now that, that half probably won't be staying? Yeah, it's hard to put percentages on it because it is a individualized assessment, but a good portion of them will not be found to be convention refugees and will be asked to leave, yeah. So uh, is coming here because conditions were bad during the earthquake, and we all remember how horrific that is, is that enough to, 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 to uh, get them refugee status if their own individual situation doesn't present any threat? Unfortunately, that on its own probably would not qualify them, and that's simply because natural disasters are not among the listed enumerated grounds on which someone can claim refugee protection. It's something that a number of organizations um, have asked to include, but it currently is not listed as a ground for protection on its own. Uh, People who, and this is a question from a listener, um, people who don't make it, people who are deported, 
where do they go back? Do they go back to the United States? Do they go back to, to Haiti? No, they go back to Haiti. You have to. You can only be sent back to where you're a citizen of, where you have a passport to be sent back to. So they don't get to go back to the U.S. Once they're here, they've made that choice to go under the Canadian process, and right. the Canadian process decides that they don't qualify, they'll be sent back home. But again, I had somebody say, who's an expert in this yesterday, that, you know, if they've got a 5% uh, or a a 90% chance of being sent home where they are and a 50% chance of staying, you know, going into Canada, they're certainly going to take that chance, right? Right, and I think that's the calculus that a lot of them are are making right now, given what's happening in the U.S. Do you think this will uh, stem the flow? Do you think this will slow the flow? Uh, Perhaps. Perhaps. as, again, these, these claims are adjudicated and some are, are not um, found to qualify, I think word will get back that it, that it is not an easy process, that it is a difficult process here in Canada. And so some individuals who are now currently in the U.S. might rethink their decision. Yeah. Do you think that uh, these people, this group that's coming across, do you think that they feel that they're going to get a free pass, that it's not that, that you know, if they can get through and claim refugee status, that, that they're in? Do you think that, that, that the majority or a good portion of them believe that? I haven't personally spoken to enough of them. Most of them, as you know, are crossing the border into Quebec. And so I don't, I can't speak to what their mindset is. I think that it would be unfortunate if that was what they've been led to believe because it, it simply isn't true and they should make informed decisions. Uh, and again, considering those that are sitting in, in camps and such uh, around the world right now and waiting in line in the queue, uh, you know, although the situation with, with these Haitian uh, asylum seekers is certainly grim, it's perhaps not as grim as some of those that are waiting in line. Right, and, and, and I don't think that they're being given any special priority over other refugees who, right. are, who are waiting in line, and of course everyone does get to stay here in safety until their claim is heard. We definitely think the process can be more efficient um, so that everyone gets a chance to either, you know, receive their positive or negative decision sooner so that their their fate is, is more clear. Uh, does the PM need to address this, do you think? I mean, that's a, that's a political question for the, the PM and the government, but of course it's it's uh, something that's that's affecting the province of Quebec and, and Canada as a whole. So so I think it, it would be wise for them to do so, yeah. As a refugee lawyer, what's the solution to this? I mean, uh, you know, is it is it eliminating uh, the third-party agreement? Uh, what is the answer here? Yeah, I think in this current climate, most uh, immigration lawyers and experts in this field would agree that the safe third country agreement simply doesn't, shouldn't apply anymore because it's based on the assumption that individuals were getting um, the access to adequate protections in the U.S., which, again, under the current administration doesn't seem to be the case. So at least a suspension of that agreement until um, the normalization of the process in the U.S. W- would be recommendable, yeah. Um, I've talked to some immigration lawyers that have said the opposite, that that isn't the answer, getting rid of the safe third uh, uh country agreement simply because now instead of going through the fence, they'd all be coming through uh, legal borders in unlimited amounts because of the 1951 convention. So what needs to be done here is is to have some sort of plan to manage the numbers, figure out what the numbers are, and then figure out the best way to get people in. Yeah, I mean, I think that there has been an overemphasis on the, the numbers as they currently are. The, the, we've had about 6,000 individuals come in over the last year through the Quebec border. Typically, Canada takes in about 40,000 refugees a year. So it's not, it's not 
a dramatic increase in the amount of refugees we see making claims in Canada overall. So the the, the floodgates argument is a little premature, I would say. Well, that being said, with premature, if these if the system doesn't change in some way, I mean, we've seen it obviously increase dramatically since the winter. Why would we not see this happening in the future? And is there not need now for some sort of guidelines to, to, to manage all of this, including the numbers? Uh, I mean, I agree in, in guidelines, in, in setting up a more streamlined system, perhaps more resources to adjudicate these claims so that, again, they're dealt with efficiently and expeditiously so that individuals get their chance at a fair hearing, which they're entitled to. If they're not found to be convention refugees, then they will be asked to depart, and if they are found to be convention refugees, then they'll be allowed to establish themselves sooner. So I definitely think greater resources and guidelines on how to deal with this are something that's that's needed. Aris DeGigan has been with us, refugee lawyer, Green and Spiegel, LLP, an immigration law firm in Toronto. Where do you see this going, Aris? From here, I, I guess we, we should wait and see if, as you said, the, the, the pattern, the trend continues or if this is a, you know, a momentary uptick. Um, but I do think that the Immigration Refugee Board, that the federal government are going to be looking at this and coming up with ways to address it going forward. Eris, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. President Trump, oh, Marlene's going to like this, uh, reversed his comments in regards to Charlotte, uh, Charlottesville, uh, Virginia. He said that there was violence once again on many sides and also blamed violent protesters of the alt-left. To talk more about all of this, Claire Finkelstein is with us, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School, and is with us now. Hello, Claire. How are you today? Fine. Nice to talk to you again. Thank you for taking the time, Claire. We appreciate this. Uh, your thoughts on uh, President's tr- uh, President Trump's reaction to Charlottesville, Charlottesville on Saturday and then seemingly doing a 180 and saying everything that he was supposed to say on Monday, then completely contradicting himself at a uh, press conference on Tuesday. What are your thoughts? Well, the Tuesday conference really brings him back to what he said said originally on Saturday, which is blaming both sides for the violence uh, and saying that there's uh, responsibility all around, which is a shocking statement to many of the people who who have heard it. What he did in between that on Monday was to read a very prepared statement. Uh, He was sort of, you know, being the good boy for a moment, doing what he was supposed to do, but he clearly didn't want to maintain that and, and uh, needed Sally needed to go off off script, as it were, and the reaction to the statements on Tuesday uh, have been really significant in the U.S. and and people are just uh, furious at a number of the suggestions that he made. How does anybody explain the flip-flops? I mean, either he says one thing or, or he says another. You can't suck and blow here. Well, he's clearly getting very strong advice, particularly, we assume, from Kelly, who was, who was trying to get him under control and saying, you know, Mr. President, please only read um, prepared statements. Uh, there was a new story released today uh, that a senior White House aide said that the president had gone rogue, quite a quote unquote, and that the intention of the press conference in Trump's tower and the lobby was to have the president 
come down to the lobby, stand at the podium, make some announcements about the executive order on infrastructure that he had just signed, and then depart without answering any questions. And instead, he went ahead and took questions, and this was the result. And a number of the things that he said are, are were quite a bit even more shocking than what he had said on, on Saturday. So uh, he called the counter-protesters members of the alt-left and said that uh, the alt-left was uh, violent along with the alt-right and how come nobody is blaming them. Uh, He also suggested that many of the people who came were not white supremacists but were just interested in preserving the statue of Robert E. Lee. He criticized of people who felt that the statue of Robert E. Lee should come down on the grounds that he was a uh, Confederate general, the leading Confederate general, and and uh, in favor of slavery, by saying that what will be next, they'll be wanting to take down statues of Washington and Jefferson because they were slave owners, as though that would be absurd. So people really feel that he showed his sympathy sympathy for uh, the neo-Nazi groups and the white nationalists that were there in rather unvarnished terms. And it's kind of a turning point, I think, for this presidency as a result. Uh, A turning point. What are you predicting moving forward then? Uh, Another press conference and another flip-flop? I mean, how is this a turning point? Well, it seems to be a turning point because he's really saying, look, these are my politics. This is where I stand. And if they're not his own politics, he showed a willingness to pander and to um, uh, to uh, sympathize with people who have those politics. He's clearly very afraid of crossing David Duke. Uh, and um, whether, again, it almost doesn't matter whether or not they're his personal sentiments or he is trying to curry favor with white nationalists, he has very strongly aligned himself with those individuals. This now puts uh, Republicans in a very difficult position who have been supporting him. Are they going to continue to support him, or are they uh, going to disavow the administration at this point? It's becoming more and more difficult for people to stand with him after after these remarks and these sentiments. Over and above what he said, the fact that he contradicted himself so much over the course of those few days... Uh, and for a man who who constantly uses the term fake news, what are his views? How is anybody supposed to understand or 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 or, or, or take what he says verbatim? Well, he does contradict himself a lot, but he's never shown that he was troubled by that in any sense. What I think is important hmm. to note here, though, is that a lot of people are saying, you know, is he really racist or is he just pandering to the white? right-wing base that put him in office. And I think that's a false dichotomy, because the fact that he is so willing in in such an overt way to associate himself with, the, with David Duke, with the white supremacists, to criticize the left as alt-left, to say that they were violent when, in fact, there's uh, nothing like the kind of violence um, among the counter-protesters that there was among the protesters. Um, and not, most importantly, not to denounce the kind of bigotry and racism that was on display there uh, among the demonstrators uh, and, and the armed attack that was intended to convey that point of view. 
mean, those are, are real moments of uh, separating the wheat from the chaff. If he is intent to to shore up his power and to shore up his base by using those politics, it really doesn't matter whether or not they are his personal sentiments at this point. It's as if there's, it's as if he's trying to create two different discussions here. He's trying to create a discussion around the violence that happened during these protests. And, and, and somehow equating it that these two sides are equal, that this side just likes this and this side just likes that, and they unfortunately can't get along. I mean, that's not the case here. This is a group with Nazis and KKK involved who, who, who are trying to ethnically cleanse historically. So how can you put these in the same group? And say both well, are, both are, both master, are, yeah. both are behaving badly, you know? Yeah, President Trump is the master of these false equivalencies. This is the kind of reasoning that he engages in all the time. And it's always a kind of rhetorical sleight of hand. It's always a, um, a, it, an intention and a, and a use of sort of obfuscation to avoid moral realities. Uh, I think playing that hand out and that method on this particular issue is really explosive in the U.S. because this is not the sort of issue with, a, with extreme violence, with Nazi flags on display, with demonstrators who came in the hundreds armed to the teeth in order to inflict violence in pursuit of their views. There's no middle ground here. And so once he is lining himself with them, it really doesn't matter what he says or does after that. These are the positions that his administration and he has come to be associated with. And the question is, will the Republicans uh, in Congress and in the Senate continue to turn a blind eye to these politics in order to get through their agendas can they continue to do that? Hmm. Um, he, he, uh, there was a message from David Duke, uh, a former leader of the KKK, uh, prior to his, uh, uh, I guess, uh, after his speech on Monday, saying that he's not representing the people who put him in office. Then, of course, he does the 180, and, and Duke's now praising him for standing up. Uh, what does it say now where David Duke is now in the news again and getting all this attention? I mean, isn't that shocking That's enough right. to anybody? It, it is very shocking. It is very shocking. It's also uh, the president's remarks about Duke in yesterday's press conference were particularly puzzling because he said he had not made a statement earlier because he was, quote, trying to get all the facts and re- repeatedly insisted that he didn't like making statements without a full grasp of the facts, which we know not to be the case with this president, uh, and then said, I didn't know David Duke was there. Now, that's a kind of amazing thing. I mean, usually he reserves those kinds of reverential terms for uh, for Vladimir Putin. Hmm. So we've got, you know, his his two heroes seem to be David Duke on the one hand and Vladimir Putin on the other, uh, and uh, he was obviously very, very afraid of crossing him. David Duke came out and said, you know, this is not going to help you, mm. Mr. Trump, right? This yep. kind of 
um, criticizing of the right is not going to help you. People are going to know where you stand anyway. Is this a left- that is a truth that I think is important for us to hear. Is this a big left-right issue or is it a racism issue? I think it's a racism issue. Uh, the left-right issue has been left so far in the dust. I mean, Republicans should be looking at this guy and saying he is not a Republican. He does not stand for conservative values. This is not the um, kind of value that conservatives have been trying to establish in the last 50 years in this country. So the standard left-right debates that we have in the U.S. are not being fought out here. But what is being fought out here is a, a really ugly politics around uh, racism, anti-Semitism, uh, and hate and anger. And I think that is where uh, people will finally start to give up on this administration who would otherwise try to support it for the sake of a conservative agenda, which is not even getting through with this presidency. Uh, af- so Republicans are beginning to voice disappointments. Uh, af- I've often talk ab- uh, talked about that. At what point do supporters of of Trump finally realize that, boy, you know, we put all of our, our, our fish in, in, or all of our eggs in one basket here, and he's let us down. He had, a, he had an opportunity to instigate change, you know, with the anti-establishment vote. At what point do they start to feel uh, disenfranchised from him, too, as much as they do, uh, you know, typical status quo politics? Another question I want to ask you prior to, uh, or rather after uh, Monday's uh, recovery, if you might say, uh, where, he, where tr- Trump condemned everybody, um, then the chatter was, well, it's only a matter of time now before Steve Bannon's gone. Steve Bannon's gone now. This is, you know, that's what happened on Saturday. That was Steve Bannon. This is the White House getting control of Donald again. Uh, then on Monday, of course, uh, a 180 again. So does that mean Steve Bannon's safe? It's unclear right now. From his remarks yesterday, the president said that uh, Mr. Bannon is a good man, he said. He said he is not a racist. Uh, that he knows him well and and that he's not a racist, uh, and that in response to a direct question about whether or not Bannon stays, he said, uh, we'll see. Um, we'll see how this plays out, in effect. So uh, I think he, he likes Bannon very much. We know that. We know that he relies a lot on him. I doubt he wants to fire him, but I'm sure that he has, we know that he's come under pressure um, among other things, from from his own daughter and and uh, Jared Kushner, uh, in particular, to um, fire Mr. Bannon. So uh, we will see. I think he will hang on to him as long as possible, but it will signal something quite significant if he is unable to keep him there for political reasons. Another thing I couldn't help but notice. Uh with this press conference yesterday uh, was the despondent face of General Kelly. Um, you, you know, he, he, you could tell that this is, is a military man who, who likes to keep control of things. He did not look happy when Trump went off on this tirade. And I think it's not just wants to keep control of things. I mean, the kinds of remarks that the president is making under these circumstances go against all notions of military honor and the rule of law. Hmm. 
anyone with a military training has been exposed to concepts relating to the rule of law and rule of law values in a way that will make them extremely uncomfortable with this level of association with lawlessness. So when you have the president seemingly unwilling to condemn individuals who come armed to the teeth, dressed almost like fake law enforcement officers in order to engage in attacks uh, on uh, other protesters, other individuals who uh, are opposed to their ideology, when you have individuals who are bent on violence and on hate, and you find that the president is supporting them, that appears to be a kind of um, incitement to violence. He certainly has been, through his tweets, inciting violence against journalists, violence against the media. All of this goes against military discipline and the concept of the rule of law. And so I imagine anyone with the kind of military training that, that General Kelly has is going to be extremely uncomfortable, and I wonder how long he can last in that administration. So what happens next? I mean, obviously there was the Saturday comment, then the Monday comment, and, and then the Tuesday press conference. Where does, what happens now? How does, how does he dig himself out of this? Does he hold another press conference, which obviously seemed to be his downfall? I think he may try to issue additional statements, but he's showing himself to be unwilling to listen to his handlers. And so they know that any attempts that they make to get him under control will be undermined repeatedly. They might be able to get him to, to read another statement, but he'll he'll undermine those statements again. And uh, anyone trying to press him to make appropriate remarks will find that this is the case. So his popularity ratings continue to go down. He continues to be extremely unhinged. And in the face of that, he is losing more and more of his core supporters. One thing we know about Donald Trump is that when he loses supporters, he he alienates them. He does not try to win them back (laughs) by nature, but he goes back into his you know, sort of man cave and and goes back to his base and digs himself in that much harder. If you're, I if don't you, think that he will listen to his handlers to try to boost his own popularity. Uh, very quickly, Claire, you don't want this guy in front of microphones handling a press conference, do you? If you're a handler, you want to keep him away from press conferences, do you not? That's exactly right. And of course, that's what they have historically done. He is himself insisting on reaching out more to the media than he has done in the past. But of course, while he's speaking to the media, he's accusing them of being fake news all the while and Mm. trying to control the agenda by telling them, no, give me a question on infrastructure. Don't give me this. So he, he doesn't manage the press well when he tries to do it. His handlers would probably be smart to go back to having little to no press conferences, but it may be hard to to stuff that genie back into the bottle at this point. Claire Finkelstein has been with us, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School. Claire, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.